All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan, and welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Jason Azevedo. Jason has had the heart of business development since an early age, starting a very successful apparel company that grew from humble garage beginnings to annual gross billings over a million dollars at age 15. By 18, Jason was doing millions in business with Starbucks, Nike, Disney, Marvel, Volkswagen, Audi, Lucasfilms, Dodgers, and countless NBA teams. So Jason, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So I know you had a really early start. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you've, all that you've done. Yeah, I... I'll tell you a story on what it is. We, I got to set the stage. It's February of 2007 when we started our first company. I'm 15. My brother's 20. And we came from a household that our father worked in a factory, was worked graveyard 28, 29 years for the same company. And in the last six or seven years of working there, got laid off about that many times because there were so many changes in the ownership. So my brother and I are watching what was actually the most profitable plant in the country for the for these companies. That's why they're able to keep on selling the plant. But they had messed up the relationship between the management and the employees so bad that the plant was almost impossible to own. So what we got to see it from the employee side and what that does to a family and does to, to the dynamic of a person when there's all that turmoil going on within a manufacturing plant. So we launched our first company at 15 with the belief that we could do something special for the people. And really, it didn't have to be that toxic environment in a manufacturing plant. And we started in t-shirts, of all things. And one because it was February of 2007, when the market crashes about a year nine months to a year later, we took a left turn and went with for the most complicated production we possibly could and got ourselves onto the cutting edge of that industry. What ends up happening is a ton of clients are available because companies are going out of business left and right. And it's leaving very strong clients that need cutting edge work to stand out in a hard market. And that's what launched us. So besides t-shirts, then what exactly what were you doing when you were seeing all of the economy taking a dump and all of these companies were looking for help, what were you doing for them? So we started in t-shirts and that frankly wasn't a, it wasn't that great of a business because like I said, market falls out. And at that time, a lot of what we're doing is 15 year old kid and the, it was family reunion shirts or giveaway shirts, all those budgets disappeared, whether it be on the personal side or on the corporate side. So then we actually got into cut, cutting and sewing the shirts and doing the craziest things we possibly could. Also, cut, there was a huge push during that time to switch to way more environmentally friendly inks, inks that didn't have phthalates in it. And we were helping develop those with the ink companies on how to use them throughout the world. So 
really it became a a movement into the modern cycle of apparel and a lot we got into even doing cup sleeves for coffees that were made out of denim so really just making anything that was based in apparel or textile and trying to develop it in a more modern more cutting edge way throughout the life cycle of products and so was this what you were doing with Nike and Disney and Marvel and all of these? So so talk a little bit about this. Why did they reach out to a 15 or maybe by this age, 18-year-old kid to do this for them? So interesting things happen when markets crash. Really large players will start having cash flow issues. And that's what we saw happen in 2008. So a company that, say, servicing Disney, Nike, Adidas – typically is going to be this massive conglomerate in the space. Those guys started having problems and they couldn't keep the doors open because of cash flow. All of a sudden, a company like a Disney of the world or a large organization like that, they don't have a place to go. And they're searching for somebody to take something on. The other part of it is it has to be somebody that that when you've got your marketing budget collapsing, the there's two schools of thought there's either spend way more on less items or spend way less on more items and it's a volume versus a quality issue a lot of companies realized hey i can't give away a hundred thousand shirts a year anymore i can't give away a hundred thousand pieces of apparel but if what if i can give away 10,000 that really make an impact and that's what we're going to people and selling them is hey The freebie, ugly, chintzy things that you were doing, that doesn't work anymore. Um, So I'll I'll give an example. We were working with a very prominent cybersecurity company, and we helped them develop out their trade show booth. And when you would walk into the booth, they gave out these shirts that had the company logo on them, and it was okay, whatever. And they told everyone, "Where where are the shirts to your bed? We'll give you a giveaway or something like that. So people would walk into this trade show booth wearing this piece of apparel that they were given that looks like a a cheap giveaway. And as soon as you walked into their booth, we had embedded photochromatic inks into it. And all of a sudden, all these cybersecurity terms would start showing up all over the clothing you're wearing. And the company's sitting there going, see, when you're with us, you can see all the problems. Wow. (laughs) So that's what we were doing. We were selling way more than just a hey, this is cool. It was, we were really trying to make sure those marketing budgets was going as far as they physically could. Oh, that is so interesting. So then from t-shirts, where did you go? We ended up moving into retail displays. And really that was, it was another transition point. We got into producing the end caps that you see in all the major box stores and Best Buy and Fry's Electronics. And this was really during that time where everyone was calling the retail apocalypse, but really what it was a change in market and how you market in store and what you were looking for and really embedding a lot more communication between the client and the display. So whether that be buttons or integrating control systems that turn on lights and really interact with the cl- the person that's looking at the display. And what ended up happening is we started that display, that company largely assembling components bought by other people. We would design them, send them out to somebody, they would make our sheet metal or they make our plastic or any other combination of that. And people couldn't hit the standard that we were looking for. 
on a regular basis. So we started either buying or building every one of those sub companies, whether it be a button manufacturer or a sheet metal company or injection molder or a, a print division. And we really started honing in on all of these different types of manufacturing to build these displays. So you went out, you weren't finding the the quality of the products that you needed. So then you just started buying companies. So what did that? Buying or building the companies. And it wasn't necessarily the quality is we were in a marketing sector. Marketing is a very fast paced industry. And what we had noticed was that American manufacturers that we were talking to in our local area, they're quoting lead times of 12 to 16 weeks. In the marketing world, 12 to 16 weeks is insane. It, that, that, there's just, that, that timeline doesn't exist. So we couldn't get that responsiveness that we needed. So we decided, hey, let's start building the companies ourselves. And what were some of the things, because I know we talked a little bit about this before the show, that you are working with legacy manufacturing companies and really help bringing them to that next level. So what are some of the things that you've done that have set you and set those companies apart to get them into a, a different way of thinking, it sounds? Yeah. So what we do nowadays is we buy legacy U.S. manufacturing companies, usually going to be second, third generation companies with no planned out succession plan, really giving a way to make sure that the company stays safe in the community that it's in, but also adding that energy level that and new processes that we develop. So whether that be new age and how do we have robotics or automation or computer systems control more and more of the, pro- the process or just n- modern processing in general. So a lot of the, during the late nineties, the big one was Kaizen and 5S and all of these buzzwords, but there's a new age of mixing that with technology and how do you really work with that? And because many of the companies that we purchase are second, third generation, they haven't gone through that transition to become, to use a buzzword, a lean organization or really focused on how do we bring the production size down or up as much as we want, but not have it affect our internal production. Well, and there's so many things that you said in there as far as succession planning, because when we when you're past that second or third generation, who are you going to give it to if the kids are no longer in or the grandkids are no longer in there? And then, of course, there's always the fear of automation of people coming in and what jobs is that going to replace or how is that going to modernize us? So if somebody listening to this, this show is in that space where they don't know what the next thing is, what are some of the things that you've helped these manufacturers do or I guess look at differently when it comes to creating that legacy that they worked so hard to build? Yeah. So you hit on something that I like to take on head on and it's something that we have to take on head on when we go into companies. It is a fallacy that automation removes American jobs. Right. It actually gives them because automation innovation is the reason why the competition from low-wage countries is fading quickly. 
that it is the tool that allows American manufacturing to grow and to fulfill the need. Also, if manufacturing companies do not automate, we, we there, there is a huge problem. And the reason why we're consuming products three to four times faster than we did 20 years ago, yet have the same manufacturing force. If we cannot produce three to four times faster, we physically cannot have the products that industry is re requesting. So I, we always take that head on is automation is not something to be feared. Automation is, it is the tool that allows American manufacturers to compete with anyone in the world. Because now you can pay a good wage and get product out. Well, and not only that, a lot of younger people coming into manufacturing have this idea of it being dark, dirty, and dangerous. And now you're showing something that's clean, it's modern. Somebody walks into a plant, they see a robot or they see automation there, and it brings a whole new level of attraction to manufacturing because it busts what they thought that it would be. Because you have to have a clean environment to have robots in there. And you hit on another thing that's really near and dear to our hearts is because of that mentality that people have stuck in their heads, that Charles Dickens, dirt floors, machines throwing grease everywhere. That's the picture that most people have of a manufacturing plant. Right. That has directly caused an issue with this, with succession planning in the space. A, an entire generation of kids came up being told, do anything but go into a plant. Whether it be from the leadership side or from the floor side, they were told any industry on earth other than manufacturing. And I was told that. My brother was told that. We didn't listen very well, but we were told it. <laughs> so that is what's that's causing this gap, that there is really not a large class of people coming coming into the industry. And we're trying to change that actively is we try to get as many people into plants as possible and show them, hey, this is not what you used to think about it. If you look at the Tesla drone footage going through their plants, they look like dealerships, not plants anymore. They're white floors, bright lights, like they're gorgeous. And if we can get people to break that stigma, now you've got a really strong industry brewing, brewing around you. When you, if you look at it from a parent side or from a guidance counselor side, which is where kind of the kids' thoughts begin as far as what they're going to do with their career, here you have a great job, good money, excellent benefits. And when you leave work, for the most part, you leave work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so work-life balance is a, not that there's ever any balance, but work-life integration is a lot easier if you're looking into some of these types of jobs in manufacturing for that reason, and plus you're making a really good money without also without having a whole lot of student loan debt because you don't necessarily need to go to a four-year college to do that. And that's one of the beauties of manufacturing is throughout the manufacturing industry, pretty much every job will pay you to train you on site. This is not a, oh, go get an education, hope you get a job. Walk into most manufacturing companies and they will be like, great, let me show you how to help me. Let's do this. And that's a huge step in the right direction. And really also, I think you've talked about it a little bit, but the technology, but also really connecting 
these new employees with the mission. I run into this conversation all the time about these people saying, these kids, they don't have a work ethic. They won't pay their dues. Nobody is paying their dues anymore. We're connecting with them differently than we had, knowing that they see the world differently when it comes to technology. So there's a lot of this old mentality that we just have to little by little start to get out because if we're looking at 3 million manufacturing jobs going unfilled and not enough people to fill any of them to begin with, it's just a whole it's a cleanup job that we have our work cut out for us. Yeah, we've got solidly a generation that was told, stay away from the industry. And if not two generations. And that it, the unpacking that is going to take time. And what it's created is, and I say this, being somebody who was told not to go into this industry and was told that it was a horrible place to be, it takes showing that, hey, it's not a horrible place to be. Yet there was a period of time that it got real ugly because we had a sudden issue with competing against low-wage countries. But Americans did what Americans do great. They innovated their way out of it. And that understanding, whether it be from people that have craftsmen that have been in the manufacturing industry for 40 years or a new person coming in, you need to convince both of them that the times have changed. And if the second you can do that, the two can learn from each other. Huge. And one of the things that we run into is there, one of the great parts about automation is it's taken away a lot of those painful jobs, the ones that destroy your body. The first thing any plant should look at doing is getting rid of those jobs with automation. So that whole pay your dues side, part of it's running away because, hey, there isn't a machine to go stick the young guy inside of and make him turn a wrench all day on it. It just, that's not the, it doesn't exist anymore throughout a lot of these. And the other thing we really have to look at is that workplace culture. You said at the beginning of your career that there were a lot of toxic companies out there, and believe me, there still are, but creating the workplace type of culture that brings people in that they where they feel valued, acknowledged, appreciated. And I know that you have also exploring the opportunities of ESOPs where not, you're not only getting people to buy into their mission, but you're helping them to become owners of the company, which would really create that loyalty. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing from a workforce standpoint to create that great environment? Yeah. So every because we buy legacy companies, you also buy legacy attitudes, legacy quality. Let you buy what this company has been. So we purposely do look for companies that have a better culture than most because it frankly it's easier to start from there. But one of the one of the biggest things you put on the you went into the ESOP, we the general partners for MRCA when we got together to build this company, we made a promise that we were going to ESOP 100% of the shares in under 10 years. So the entire national portfolio, if you work for MRCA, you are you're getting the shares that, that we and that was the promise that we made to everybody. And frankly. That goes a long way with culture. 
when people feel that they truly have a piece of it and they're, they are part of it. But I'll give an example. We're very fortunate. One of our, one of our head of manufacturing was actually one of the early Tesla people. And we were, he came in the other day, he goes, I want, I want to put plants on the shop, on the, on the plant floors. Okay. Why? Because it working in a concrete bunker just isn't, it's not comfortable. So if the office gets plants, how come the shop floor doesn't get plants? Really good point. Okay. Let's get plants on the shop floor. And so it's simple stuff like that. We have a company of ours that we actually just took it that all, all office engineering, all other employees, they now sit on the shop floor. There's no offices at all because the, the, the question came up. Why is one different than the other? They have to take phone calls. Great. Then we've got phone meeting rooms, but the rest of your day, you're, you're, you are actually in the plant. And so stuff like that goes a long way. It's a couple of years ago, 4th of July, we're an American manufacturing company. 4th of July is a big day for us. We were running 24 hours a day and we could not, because and this was there were still some COVID rules going on. So the only way we could actually do a barbecue for everybody was the ownership actually personally did the barbecue 24 straight hours and individually packaged everybody's lunch that day. Wow. You can't replace that. We talked about paying your dues. As ownership, you got to pay your dues. People must know you're willing to go to any portion of the company. And the culture starts building itself. You start getting people that truly believe in what's going on. And it's funny because it sounds like that takes a lot of time to do something like that. And would you rather spend your time connecting with those employees by having something fun like a barbecue that they've probably never experienced in their career before? Or would you rather spend your time interviewing new candidates for jobs because you keep losing them? So I think that when we build that strong culture, then it gives us the time and the creativity to do new things because you're not spending all of your time trying to recruit and attract new people in a market where they're just really hard to find. And there's a famous Richard Branson quote that I that we really live by. And it's people ask me, what if you what if you invest all that money and time in people and they leave? What if you don't and they stay? Right. <laughs> yeah, <Like>, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, you, but it is a lot of work. Culture is a lot of work. And the reality is in manufacturing specifically, and every industry loves to say this, we're in the people business. No, we are actually in the people business. That We use more man hours than pretty much of any other industry. And the reality is manufacturing companies sell man hours. So exactly, if you don't realize that your number one asset is the human, you'll just never, you won't get how the industry runs. Yeah. There was another Richard Branton quote that I love, and I'm probably going to get the words wrong, but basically he said, train your people so that they can leave, but treat them so that they won't. Because like you just said, you're investing in your employees. You're giving them the tools and the resources to be better tomorrow than they are today. And when you treat them well so that they feel that they're connected to the mission, that they are a part of it, that now they're an owner of the company, they enjoy coming to work for it because for goodness sake, there's plants, there's plants in the plant, which is actually funny, but you're just, you're really paying attention to workplace culture much more 
than manufacturers used to think that they had to. Yeah, it's it we're it, we're in an interesting time in American manufacturing that you used to have to go out and chase business all the time, but you had tons of people. And in the last about two and a half years, that's starting to quickly change where you don't have to chase business nearly as much, but you're chasing people all day long. I, I, I have yet to go to a single manufacturing plant in the US and I go to a lot of them that I'd ask people, hey, what's your number one problem? That the instant answer is I can't get people. <laughs> yeah. And so we look at some of the things, again, the little things that they can do to keep the people that they already have, but then also looking at ways to change that conversation. We just had Manufacturing Day, first Friday in October, come and go. And so really looking at those types of opportunities to reach out to the community, to the schools, to the parents, and show them that if your kid wants to go and work with their hands, let them. Well, and I think there's also a, for manufacturers, we need to start employing new tricks and trying new things. I had a CEO of a manufacturing company that I know, highly respect this individual. And he went to the owner of the plant and they were having trouble getting people to clock in on time. And he goes, I'm going to make a deal. Any employee who clocks in 90 straight days on time gets a $1 or $2 raise or something like that. The owner goes, that's absolutely insane. We're going to reward them for something they should be doing. And this, and he goes, I happen to know that habits and patterns are formed at 30 to 45 days. So if I can double that amount of time, I will ingrain it in my people that they get there and their life schedules will now match this because they're going for that extra money. He goes, I'm willing to bet that after this program ends, all of our people still clock in on time almost every day. They implemented it. And a year later, their clocks are almost flawless. Everybody's on time in their spot before they go. And there's no new incentive being added. But they employed a different method. It tried something out. It could have failed miserably, but at least they're trying a different way instead of the older way of just coming down on. Let me get this right. Was it a dollar an hour more just for those 90 days nope. or whatever it was? Nope. In perpetuity on their in their checks. It was a race. And it just okay. it built in it. So there was a huge incentive, but the, and they had gone back and forth, the, the owner and the CEO, and it's going to cost us a bunch of money. He goes, if I can just get back this much production a day, that extra dollar, we <laughs> I make the money. It really doesn't matter. So they, he, they looked at it from both a fiscal side, but also a, Hey, we're building habits too. So we're, right. they're using a psychological side. They're using a pattern side. But it's coming at it different where if you went back 25 years and we've employed executives that have done this too, they sit by the clock and at 6.01, if you're supposed to be in at six, you send the person home. Yeah, that doesn't work anymore when there's 3 million jobs that people are trying to fill. And the interesting thing is because I've heard different variations of that type of thing where people will give them a bonus if they come in 30 days on time. And the interesting thing is when it's a toxic work environment, employees don't care. Yeah. They don't care about the extra couple hundred bucks. It's not going to make or break them to bribe them to come in for, to not miss a day or to be 100% attendance in that 30-day period. So they really do have to go hand in hand. So in your example, 
there was probably enough of a good foundation of a good company culture where employees are like, okay, cool. That makes sense to me. I'm coming in versus I'm bribing you to come to my toxic workplace <laughs> by giving you some extra cash. Yeah. It's, it all does start at that culture. You can throw as much money at pretty much any problem you want. If your culture is wrong, you're just going to keep on burning cash. And if you look for all intents and purposes, what Tesla has done launching a car company in Fremont, California, of all places, during some really rough years and opening a plant from nothing is one of the craziest manufacturing stories in the last two decades. But if you know the employees that were there, the pride that they had in what they were doing, it was, it's second to none. They, you're talking to them and it's, that company is them. It's something yeah. that they tell their kids about. I was one of the ones who launched this. I, they talk about the models like it's their baby and they're, oh yeah, I, that was ingrained from the leadership. That, that, and you get the stories of Elon literally passed out sleeping at the uh, on the factory floor because he has nothing left in him. And those all sound like great sound bites for the press. But I've talked to people like, no, we actually had to step over him because he fell asleep in front of the door one time. But you can't replace that. It's just there's nothing that makes up for it. And that's why they were able to pull off the craziness they've pulled off is because the people were so invested in it. From a mission standpoint, from a, they felt like the leadership was willing to do anything that they could to help. That's what changes this. So as we're getting to the end of our time together, because it looks like, it sounds like we could go on and on talking about workplace forever. But what would you say would be the easiest or the best tip for somebody just to get started? If they want to look for something they can do to take their manufacturing plant to that next level what does that look like go hang out with your people <laughs> like it's re really it's amazing how many people want to do it from a whiteboard or a boardroom go hang out with the manufacturing employees and find out what sucks in the plant because chances are if it sucks and you can find a way to make the process better or make or automate it or something like that that is where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. And the other thing too, is you have a built-in support system for when you go to make a change, where instead of you coming in going, I got this genius idea and everybody fighting you, if you go out there and go, hey, you told me this sucked, here's how I think we can fix it. That, But it starts with just really talking to your people. Exactly. If people did want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? And how do you work with your the clients that you do have? So best way is mrca.net. Uh, there's actually a link on there to get directly on my calendar. I will, I'll take the time to talk to anybody pretty much about anything is we are very transparent on how we do things and very much an open book. So if you want to talk about your manufacturing company, you want to, you want to sell or buy one, or you want to talk about how to invest with us, whatever it is, uh, if you want to talk about a cookie recipe, uh, we'll, we'll, the, the link is on there to get directly on my calendar or any of the other general partners also. If you're just keeping up with what we're doing, LinkedIn, MRCA, LinkedIn backslash MRCA, it has just a mixture of all sorts of 
things we find cool, things that we're doing, things that we think other people are, or that we think are cool that other people are doing, commentary on the likes, um, and that would be LinkedIn backslash MRCA. Okay. All right, Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.